0: This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we
1: going to stand with God, come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it!
0: And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Many of us have heard Charles Haddon Spurgeon's designation as the Prince of Preachers, but What do you know about him as a great lover at heart? My next guest says that's in fact what he was, and that is evident when you dig more deeply into the romance and marriage between Charles and Susie Spurgeon. So joining us now is Pastor Ray Rhodes, Jr., founding pastor of Grace Community Church of Dawsonville, Georgia, and president of Nourished in the Word Ministries. He is a real aficionado when it comes to the Spurgeons and has written a new book about their marriage, which is called Yours Till Heaven, the untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Ray, so good to have you with us again. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Janet. Thank you for having me back. I hope you're doing well.
0: I am. Thank you so much. It's great to have you with us and great to be talking about the Spurgeons again. I I love how much you know about the Spurgeons. You must feel at some point that you almost know them or had known them at some point because you really know a lot about these two.
1: Well, sometimes I forget which century I'm
0: living in. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you mean. Oh, that's so funny. Well, I know we've talked before about Susie. This time you're looking at the love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Why take a look at their marriage? What do you think is significant for Christians to understand about them?
1: Yeah, I think we think of Charles Spurgeon, as you said, the prince of preachers, a great writer, thinker, leader. Uh, But uh, there's something going on behind that, and it's a wonderful romantic marriage, a 36-year marriage to Susie Susie Thompson, her maiden name, and, of course, Susie Spurgeon.
0: Right. So tell us a little bit about these two, because I know that you talk about the fact that they were different in some ways. She was a more urban sort of girl. He was more of a small-town boy. But tell us a little bit about their background and, and how they initially met.
1: Yeah, Charles was born to uh, in a preacher's home. His father and grandfather were uh, small village preachers. Uh, his grandfather for many years at the same church. His father at various churches. His father was bivocational, so he grew up in Christian home. And uh, you know, at 15 he was converted. He was preaching, uh, pastoring really by 17, uh, north of London. And at age 19, he came to London as a guest preacher at the New Park Street Chapel A December day. They were without a pastor, and uh, they were quite taken with him, except for Susie Thompson, who was attending the evening service of that Sunday. Uh, She was not that impressed with him. But uh, lo and behold, uh, the church continued their interest. They asked him to become their pastor. Uh, He officially did in April of 1854. And by that time, Susie had warmed up to him, and he discovered uh, she's struggling spiritually. He sends her a copy of The Pilgrim's Progress, and he begins helping her in her journey of faith. So that was the very earliest uh, kind of meetings with her.
0: Yeah. What was it that she didn't like about him initially? Was there something that bugged her about him, or was it just he didn't do it for her?
1: You're right. Yeah. Well, he didn't look—he was not a handsome guy, and he had a very uh, country-fied— manner about him she's a london girl all of her life except for some excursions to paris and he's from the deep country so the way he talked the way he his hair she describes that his clothing his mannerisms she was used to a very refined cultured london type pastor and charles was none of those things the <laughs> later she said uh, her first reactions was more uh, testimony of her backslidden state Than her, than Charles, any problems with Charles.
0: That's interesting. So, when he sent the Pilgrim's Progress to her, how did that break through? Was it the fact that he cared about her spiritual state? Was it that she saw him now with new eyes as a Christian? Or what do you think it was that kind of turned her around?
1: Yeah, they had uh, had the opportunity to get to know one another at a at a church member's home where Charles was often invited, and she was actually a relative of that church member and stayed in their home quite a bit. But the Pilgrim's Progress did show his concern for her. Uh, it sort of it broke through the barrier a little bit, and she began to open up with him and discuss her spiritual challenges. And uh, I think their friendship began to deepen from April until June, Of 1854, when Charles made it pretty clear his uh, he was thinking other things as well uh, (laughs) about her romantically.
0: Right? How did their romance develop? You know, when they were courting, what was their courtship like?
1: Yeah, it was a uh, December—excuse me—a June day uh, in 1854, just a couple of months after the Pilgrims' Progress, when he opened a book, pointed out a poem on marriage, and asked her if she prayed for the one who's to be her husband. (laughs) And uh, she had no idea prior to that. She was just there with a church group, as was Charles, at this grand reopening of the Crystal Palace, something like the World's Fair. And uh, so she knew what he was communicating, and they took a walk together. She describes uh, love uh, in her heart already. And a couple of months later, they're engaged. And basically, their time together, their date nights, was Charles coming over to her home on a Monday night. And uh editing his sermons from Sunday they were taken down in shorthand and he would come and make edits to those. They'd be published every week and that was their date nights and then they <laughs> would meet one afternoon a week back at this Crystal Palace where this he had revealed his love to her and they would take a walk around and have some fellowship like that. But uh he was working very hard, he already was very popular and in demand. So their time was relatively limited, so she treasured those Monday night sermon edits.
0: Yeah, that's not your typical dating life, for sure. And once a week, I mean, that's difficult, too, when you're courting or engaged. That's a very small amount of time to actually be alone with the person you're in love with and you're going to marry.
1: Yes, and a lot of times she's, she says she's pretty quiet during the, those times as he's working, <laughs> uh, but she said it was good training for for her future as a pastor's wife. Yes. Uh, so she was learning. He would sometimes have her read things to him, or he, he put her on a mission one evening. He said, go get the works of Thomas Brooks and start pulling uh, great quotes from his works, and that actually became one of his early books, "Smooth Stones Taken from Ancient Brooks." Yes. And Susie chose the uh, chose really most of the quotes in that.
0: <laughs> huh? How about that? Did she have an idea of what she was getting herself into in terms of where his ministry was going? Clearly, it would be difficult initially to know exactly how great a preacher he would end up being and how popular he would end up being, and all of the you know difficulties that were ahead. But did she accept the fact that? That that was probably an indication of how the rest of her life and marriage would be. That she would have not as much access to her husband as maybe a lot of other women she knew would.
1: Yeah, she said that. in uh, when she was in, when they were engaged in August of 1854, that she had no idea. Really, I mean, he, he was very very popular even by that time. Within his first year of pastoring the church, uh, yet she she could not have begun to uh, fathom. The sort of celebrity to you know use that word, but uh, sort of uh, crowds of folks that would seek after him, he would be preaching ten or twelve times a week, <laughs> thousands of people uh, trying to to see him to hear him she couldn 't have known in fact, uh, one night he forgot about her, he had walked with her to a particular event where he was preaching. And he forgot about her. He went in to preach, and he realized at the end that she was gone. She had run home to her mom about a mile away, uh, crying, and the engagement was in trouble, really. And uh, But her mom pulled her aside and said, helped her to see that he was no ordinary man, not even an ordinary preacher man. Uh, and when he came home, he was so upset when he came to her mother's house. He was so bothered by what he had done and the wise mother, instead of driving them apart, she really pulled them together. And Susie made a commitment after that, that her singular desire was to join him in ministry and never to hinder him in his work. And she kept that commitment joyfully the rest of her life.
0: That's incredible. So the mother-in-law stopped up then.
1: She did. And <laughs> yeah, she could have divided the relationship, I think. But so she is an unsung hero in the story.
0: That's quite amazing. And, and how many children did they end up having?
1: Charles and Susie only had two children. They had twin sons the first year of their marriage, and we believe that they could not have any more children after that.
0: Yes, well, that would keep you busy, though, if you have twins. That would keep you definitely busy. But there was so much more to this marriage, and one of the things that you point out in the book, Ray, is how this title that you use in the book, Yours Till Heaven, was actually a phrase that Charles Spurgeon used in a love letter to Susie. I want to get into more when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. On a 100 degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, Kademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to his owner, one of only a few in that church to have a Bible. You see, Kademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible because he doesn't own one.
2: Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing.
0: We're partnering with Bible League International to send Bibles to 1,500 new believers in Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and every gift given right now will be doubled. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800 S W O R D. or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health care program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new health care program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare care sharing ministry that offers affordable health care sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Welcome back. It's not often that we get a glimpse into the marriages of some of the famous men in church history, but Charles Haddon Spurgeon was no ordinary man, the Prince of Preachers, and also a man who was married to an extraordinary woman named Susie. We're talking with Pastor Ray Rhodes Jr., founding pastor of Grace Community Church of Dawsonville, Georgia, about his new book called Yours Till Heaven, the untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Ray, talk about that Yours Till Heaven designation. As you point out in the book, this was something that Spurgeon put in a letter as a sign-off to Susie. What, what is significant about that particular phrase for you?
1: Yeah, yeah he's uh, they're on the eve of their wedding. Uh, this is December of 1855. Uh, he is going to visit his parents in Colchester. She's staying behind in London. And uh, he gets on the, the train, as he did every day that he was separated from her, essentially every day of their romance and marriage, uh, he wrote her a letter. Uh, that's That in itself is stunning to me. But uh, he, he signed this letter, yours till heaven, and then. And what he's communicating in that, beyond just a tender, sweet way to close a letter, is I'm totally committed you, to, uh, to you till death do us part, uh, and till, uh, till heaven. Till I go to heaven, or you go to heaven, whoever goes first. But he included two other words, and mm-hmm. then. And what he meant by that, and I talk about that later in the book, Uh, that he anticipated knowing her, loving her perfectly, not as a wife, no marriage in heaven, but loving her perfectly, knowing her perfectly, and worshiping God together around the throne. So, Mm -hmm. Susie, I am yours, till death do us part. And then we will worship God together in heaven.
0: That is so neat. And and going back to what I said at the outset, which you point out in the book, we know him as the Prince of Preachers, but what are you talking about when you call him this great lover, this great lover at heart when it came to Susie?
1: Yeah, he, he, he loved her. He communicated with her so tenderly, and one of the big takeaways for me Is And one of the challenges in convicting things is I want to learn how to better communicate to my wife after reading how Charles talked to her, how he wrote to her so tenderly, so kindly, so humorously at times. Uh, Very romantic love letters. He would sketch. He reminds me a little bit of Ronald Reagan's, Mm. if you've read any of Reagan's love letters to Nancy. Yes. He would write these sweet letters. He put little sketches in the letters. Spurgeon was very much like that. Uh, He would hold her hand as they walked around the property. When she was sick on a sofa, he would put his arm around her and pray tenderly for her. Though he was gone a lot, he made sure that all of her needs were cared for. uh, And he would buy items that would help her when she was in bed, uh, just things that would help her with her writing, helping her get her food. Uh, And he always had people with her. She was never alone. So just his attention to her needs and his encouragement to her in ministry, I don't think on her own she was that uh, assertive, but with with Charles encouraging her, uh, she's writing books, and she's leading the book fund, and she's engaged in all kinds of ministry, and much of that is an invalid. After 12 years of their marriage, she's pretty sick.
0: Right, right. And, and some people actually thought he was maybe not a great husband because he had to leave her a lot when she was seriously ill. How do you see that situation? Obviously, he had a lot on his plate that he had to attend to, given his position, but as you say, as you just mentioned, he loved his wife very much. What, what do you make of that, and what do you get from some of Susie's these writings in particular about her feelings that when she was sick he wasn't there as much as maybe other husbands would have been,
1: yeah and there's one occasion when uh, he gets word he's away from home that she is very ill and uh, they they don't know if she's going to make it uh, this is years before she died of course and uh, so he's he's getting ready to come back and then she gets a, a telegram to him do not come hmm. continue your ministry you know and essentially I'm in God's hands we know how we feel about each other i'm sort of reading into this a bit you don't need to come home uh and he he ultimately did stay behind so i think that uh, the way this worked and of course this is a different time period uh and their culture their setting and whatnot and charles and susie had a view of his public ministry as sort of the first priority of their marriage uh, it wasn't disconnected from their marriage it was simply the first priority of their marriage. And she said, again, I don't want to hinder you ever. And, and Charles never worried that he had a sulking or, or disappointed wife at home. She was lonely. She missed him, but she was not sulking uh, over him. She, he knew that he had her full support and that she wanted him doing what he did. And I think that's the way it worked. They, they were in this together, 100%, totally. And uh, there was no holding back. And so they, it pained both of them on, one of, on some of his trips to the south of France for recovery for his health. Over and over, he would say, he would write her in, in his letters, oh, that you were here. Only one thing missing, you. I wish that you were here. Oh. I mean, he felt the pain as well as as well as well she did.
0: Right. So she was willing to make that sacrifice and give him up, so to speak, in order for that ministry to thrive the way that it did. Or were there other kinds of sacrifices that she made that were really helpful to his thriving ministry? Because clearly there would be more than one sacrifice you would imagine a wife of Charles Spurgeon would have had to make.
1: Right. Yeah, she had. To, she gave him up to uh, from home often, as I, as we said. He's gone from home again many times a week, and uh, sometimes three months of the year later in life, when his own health is is getting worse she's also helping him answer letters uh, she when she's able to go to church in the first twelve years of their marriage she's counseling uh, baptismal candidates and ministering to them and some of them testified to all of that after she was dead. how much that had meant to them and the influence that she had had uh, she's supporting his work uh, in every way that she possibly can uh, through through helping to get his books. Out to poor pastors and others, so it's just a it's just a full on love and support, and it was without reservation. It was it was not a reluctant support.
0: Yeah, well, and of course they had the students at the home quite a bit, as you talk about. Yes. Was the hustle and bustle of Charles's ministry ever difficult for Susie? Did you find anything in her writings that indicated she had periods where she just you know had a normal reaction of man, I'm tired. I just wish I could have my family back and stop having these people over to the house all the time.
1: Yeah, you know, she was anxious at times. Uh, she would, uh, when he was gone, for example, she would maybe hear a noise at home, and she would imagine the way all of us do. We hear something late at night. We imagine the worst possible scenario. And uh, so she she did struggle something, some with anxiety. He struggled with depression. Thankfully, they both didn't struggle with depression. Uh, but she did get anxious, and sometimes she couldn't join him with the students because of her own health. But, yeah, almost certainly uh, uh there's probably times when just a little more quietness around the home would have been helpful.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Would you say that they had a spiritual compatibility? It certainly sounds as if they did.
1: Yeah, that was really the foundation of their marriage. We talk about that in Chapter 2 of the book is that individually... Uh, they sought the Lord in prayer. They read the Bible. They meditated on the Scripture. Spurgeon led family worship every day, usually twice a day in their home. When he's gone, Susie or someone else is leading that, and everyone would participate. the uh, The workers at their home, guests visiting them, anyone in their home was called to family worship at a particular at the particular times each day. And that, uh, you know, reading their writings, you see that the Scripture really is just is flowing through their bloodstream it's uh, it's what how they're thinking it's the way they're viewing life it's the way they 're loving one another it's the way they're dealing with their sufferings so Bible reading, prayer, meditation on scripture, family worship, and congregational worship again of course, after twelve years, Susie seldom is able to return to congregational worship but
0: right well and yet in spite of that you kind of get this idea in the Victorian age is kind of this formal age and you know people very stiff-necked and so forth you said there was actually a lot of laughter in the home too
1: Spurgeon was a very funny man uh there's there's accounts of him walking you know he could walk into a room of of uh, others and they'd all be rolling on their flo- rolling on the floor laughing so to speak. Uh, he was a, he was just a very humorous person. Someone criticized him once for using humor in the pulpit, and he never used it inappropriately, but he told the person, if you knew how much I held back, you would not condemn me, you would commend me. <laughs> so he, he thought it was just a good way to... Uh, you know, to keep the attention of the folks he talked to when he was preaching, to use appropriate humor. It wasn't like a laugh fest, as you might imagine some preachers use uh, these days. <laughs> right. It was, you know, he was serious about the worship of God. But just uh, one of his friends talks about taking a walk with him, and Spurgeon has him laughing, and then within a second Spurgeon said, let's pray. And there was just no separation to him between laughing out of joy in the Lord and, and, brother, let's pray about a particular situation. They'd be walking through the woods, they'd hit their knees, and they'd pray.
0: Well, you know, something else that I thought was interesting that you pointed out was the fact that he believed it was wrong to make his marriage his all, which is interesting, and there really is a biblical basis for that. What was he really getting at when, as much as he loved Susie, he didn't want to make their marriage the most important thing?
1: Yeah, no other gods before the one true God. And, and he knew, as we should know, that by loving Christ first and supremely, our spouse will not lose, they'll only gain. Uh, when Christ is loved as he ought to be loved, then we can love our spouse as we, as we should. Right. And, uh, but, but that tells you the strong affection that he had for Susie for him to be concerned about that. I mean this he has a really he has a burning burning affection for his wife and he knows that it has a proper place he doesn't want that to supplant the lord and I think he gets that from the puritans yeah. as well they wrote like that some of them uh, about loving their spouse valuing their spouse but not esteeming them too highly uh, putting them on a place uh, at a place reserved only for god
0: well that 's important, and you say his love for her just grew in part because he said to her what he felt for her, the fact that he would articulate his love seemed to make a big difference in how strong that marriage was
1: exactly. He was unashamed. his son, after Susie died in one thousand nine hundred three his son their son Thomas. Uh, said that his dad was unashamed to tell anyone how he felt about his mother mm. and he he did that verbally and he did that by writing it down in black and white and he's left it for, the, for us to read today
0: yeah so neat we gotta leave it there yours till heaven Ray Rhodes Jr so good to have you Ray thank you so much you're listening to Janet Meffer today This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. There's nothing like capitulating before you even have to capitulate giving in before anybody even raises the fist to try to force you to give in. And that's exactly what's going on now with Bethany Christian Services. I I almost can't believe this. This story, I suppose, falls in the category of nothing surprises me anymore, but it really kind of does surprise me. We have the Equality Act having gone through the House and passed in the House. And as we were talking about on yesterday's show, it looks unlikely under current circumstances, to be able to get through the Senate. So the Equality Act has not been passed and signed into law, which will be a game changer for Christians across this country if it actually happens. So continue to pray that it doesn't. Let your voice be heard in Washington as well to your senators. But you don't capitulate to big gay at all, but you especially do not capitulate when there isn't any reason to capitulate, You're capitulating in advance. It's weird. Let me tell you about this story. This is from the New York Times. It says, Bethany Christian Services, which is one of the country's largest adoption and foster care agencies, has now announced that it will begin providing services to LGBTQ parents nationwide, effective immediately, a major inflection point in the fraught battle over many faith-based agencies' longstanding opposition to working with same-sex couples. Okay, right there, you've got loaded language. Their opposition to working with same-sex couples, that's not the reason that you've had Christian foster care and adoption agencies not wanting to give children who belong to two biological parents, a mother and a father, to two homosexuals. It's not about working with same-sex parents. It's about the fact that they don't want to put children into a home with two men or two women. They want the children, ideally, to have a mom and a dad in a nuclear family. Big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. Bethany, a Michigan based evangelical organization, announced the change in an email to about 1,500 staff members that was signed by Chris Puluski, the organization's president and chief executive. You're going to love what he wrote. We will now offer services with the love and compassion of Jesus to the many types of families who exist in our world today. We're taking an all hands on deck approach where all are welcome. I'm sorry. You still have the word Christian in your name. The love and compassion of Jesus now includes using ridiculous phrases like many types of families. They're not families. They are not families. A family is a mom and a dad and children and the extended family. That's a family. Yes, there are adoptive families. I understand that. Yes, there are single parent families. But the nuclear family is the family upon which all people are, you all have a mother and a father. Yes. You don't have three dads. You don't have two moms, not biologically. Biologically, you have a dad and you have a mom. It's always been that way. So what's the issue here? What are you doing? What are you doing, Bethany Christian Services? The announcement, they say, is a significant departure for the 77-year-old organization, which is the largest Protestant adoption and foster agency in the U.S., Bethany facilitated 3,400 foster placements and 1,100 adoptions in 2019, and they have offices in 32 states. They also work in refugee placements. Okay, that's just an aside. Previously openly gay perspective, foster and adoptive parents in most states were referred to other agencies. The decision comes amid a high-stakes cultural and legal battle that features questions about sexuality, religious freedom, parenthood, family structure, and theology. Adoption is a potent issue in both conservative Christian and gay communities. Faith-based agencies play a substantial role in placing children in new families. Meanwhile, more than 20% of same-sex couples with children have an adopted child. Think about that. An adopted child has two same-sex, quote-unquote, parents through adoption compared to 3% of straight couples. Crazy. And this is according to a 2016 report from the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law. Gay couples are also significantly likelier to have a foster child. And they quote this fellow with the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative at the Center for American Progress saying, to use a Christian term, this is good news. This is good news. Well, consider the source. This is good news. The gospel is good news. This is not good news. Uh, He goes on to say, for too long, the public witness of Christianity has been anti-this or anti-that. Today, the focus is on serving children in need. Are you kidding me? The focus is not on the children at all. The focus is on gay activists, not even the people with whom they'll be working to place children in same-sex households. It's on gay activists because these people are caving. They are absolutely caving to the gay activists. They don't care about the kids. I'm not saying they don't care about kids at all. I don't want to be... You know, hyperbolic here. But what I'm saying is the kids are not the primary motivator here. You know, I really think the best thing is to make sure the kids can be in all types of families. So Johnny can go over here with a mom and a dad and Susie can have two dads and, you know, Trixie can have three moms, two, I'm sorry, two moms. We're not yet at the thruple stage, but I'm sure that's right around the bend. Bethany's practice of referring gay couples to other agencies was not official, the agency's leaders say. Quote, it was a general understanding that was pervasive, said Susie and Jordan, a board member and former employee. But since 2007, the organization had a position statement saying that God's design for the family is a covenant and lifelong marriage of one man and one woman. You might want to go back to that statement, folks. Just just throwing it on and out there. You might want to go back to the original plan. Uh, Bethany's informal policy became increasingly challenging for the organization in recent years as various states and municipalities began requiring agencies to accept applications from LGBTQ couples in order to maintain their government contracts. When a lesbian couple in Philadelphia attended a Bethany information session on fa- foster parenting a few years ago, they were told this organization has never placed a child with a same-sex couple. This was from a source a woman this who talked to the Philadelphia Inquirer. They were eventually referred to another agency. Media reports prompted the city to suspend contracts with Bethany's local branch and Catholic Social Services, an agency with the same practice. Some faith-based agencies have challenged new requirements to work with gay clients in the courts, Catholic Social Services, and the city of Philadelphia over its contract suspension, a case that the Supreme Court heard in November. There's supposed to be a ruling by the end of June. But Bethany has generally opted to comply. In Philadelphia, the branch changed its policy to work with gay parents, and the city restored its contract heartwarming, isn't it? That year, Bethany's National Board passed a resolution granting local boards the authority to comply with state and local contract requirements. As of last year, Bethany branches in 12 states were working with LGBTQ families, although those changes were rarely publicized. Its new approach, they say, is something of a tightrope act, an attempt to establish a clear, consistent policy of inclusion that does not rattle its core constituencies. Right. Including the churches that are its primary venue for recruiting parents. Uh, I think some of the churches are going to have a problem with this. The inclusivity resolution passed in January eliminated the 2007 position statement on marriage being between one man and one woman. But the new statement does not endorse same-sex relationships. Incredible. The policy, which was quietly approved by its 14-member national board on January 21st, instead states that Christians of mutual good faith can reasonably disagree on various doctrinal issues, about which Bethany does not maintain an organizational Position. Oh, again, so heartwarming. Take Christian out of your name. I, I don't even know why you guys exist. Who in the world involved in adoption and foster care would capitulate on this issue if you have Christian in your name? Why would you ever, you know, close shop? I know you care about kids. And if you do care about kids, you'd be willing to go out of business rather than capitulate to gay activists in order to have many different types of family. Why would you go along with this? You're not even going to have to maybe go along with it at all with the Equality Act if the Equality Act fails in the Senate. So what is the point of doing this in advance other than you have some real problems here? You have some real internal problems here. And I just mentioned some of them. The Bethany has already caved a little bit, you know, previously. So it's just, you know, following the same road. Where does it end? Where does it end? It ends with Heather has two mommies. Bethany Christian Services is now on that road, you know, Heather has two mommies and we helped him. You know, we, we help these families, many types of families obtain Heather. Two mommies obtained Heather because of Bethany Christian services. Fantastic. You must feel great. I hope that the pushback on this is loud and strong and clear because this is terrible. Those children deserve better. They need a mom and they need a dad. That's the way God designed it. Shame on Bethany. We'll be coming back. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candice talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat.
2: The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candice to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these
0: gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has ten centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of fifteen thousand dollars will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 402 baby eight five five. 402 Baby, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through May 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty Health Share with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855 585 4237 or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet Well, we were talking about Bethany Christian Services. I'm going to get into this a little bit more on tomorrow's program as well, because I have more to say. But this major evangelical adoption agency will now serve gay parents nationwide. And who cares about the kids not having a mom or a dad? It doesn't matter. Heather has two mommies. Get with the program, babe. It's progress. It's progress. Except the Bible never evolves. And I, the Lord, your God, do not change, he says. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Eternal truth does not change. The family does not change. Of course, society, which is totally affected by the fall, will do all kinds of sinful things. But Christians are not to go along with it. At least that's the way it used to be these days. Not really sure what's up except mass apostasy. i just saying. I'm just saying. And I think this is just disgraceful what they're doing, and I I can't even wrap my head around it. But you know, it kind of reminded me of what Senator Tommy Tuberville said. I don't know if you heard a little bit of the speech that he gave on the Senate floor, but I I really appreciated it. And I thought about this when I was reading this story about Bethany. I want to play a little bit of what he had to say. This is cut two.
1: We've got to start teaching our young people moral values again. That starts with putting God and prayer back in our schools. Our kids need structure and they need to learn right from wrong. I've watched everything that has happened in education over the past few decades. From a front row seat on my sideline as a coach, it's embarrassing. As a person who chooses to spend their career in education, I now have the opportunity to say something as a United States Senator. Our young people are our number one hope for this country's future. If we don't recognize that, we're going to lose our country as we know it.
0: He's right. We will lose our country as we know it. Children are the future. You might want to think about that, Bethany Christian Services. And by the way, he's getting a lot of pushback in saying that we've got to start teaching our young people moral values again. That starts with putting God in prayer back in our schools. We need God in prayer back in our homes, too. We need God in prayer back in our homes. What are we doing to our children? What kind of social experimentation are we playing with little kids and babies You know, it's bad enough that we have to deal with the scourge of abortion. Now we're seeing what happens to children with this gay agenda. It's just, I don't know. The fear of God really paralyzes me sometimes when I consider he is holy. He is holy. And those little ones matter to him. Think about what Jesus said about it would be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the bottom of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to sin. God takes it very seriously, and we don't. We just shrug our shoulders and move on. Eh, gay families, whatever. I don't think God feels that way. In fact, I know God doesn't feel that way because we have his word, and we know what he says about sin, and we are responsible for obeying him as Christians, and I think we need to consider that much more significantly than we do, and there needs to be much more heart repentance with all of us for what we have allowed to occur in the greatest nation in the world on our watch as Christians shame on us. You know, shame on all of us for shrugging our shoulders at the proliferation of really heinous sin across this land. Where are the pulpits thundering with thus saith the Lord? Where are they? I've been looking for them for a long time and I don't see a lot of them out there. Very, 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 very few. Where are you? Where are you, men of God? Why aren't you calling this stuff out from the pulpit? Or are you afraid that somebody's going to push back and say, I don't want you talking about that stuff because I have someone in my family, dot, dot, dot. You know, It's not about you and your family because God's truth applies across the board to everybody in all circumstances for all time. And you will never come to know the Lord as your Lord and your Savior if you're not first confronted with your sin anyway. You shouldn't tone down anything regarding repentance or the true nature of our guilt before God because what you're doing is you're hurting people. You're hurting people. And you're going to make sure that those people spend eternity in hell because they never heard the truth that they need to repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How in the world are we going to get the gospel to a world when we don't even want to talk about sin? And I guess that's more for another time. Meanwhile, we have... President Biden canceling Dr. Seuss. You know, let's go to the important news, right? He's bucking predecessors. He omitted Dr. Seuss from his Read Across America Day proclamation after the Virginia school system dropped the iconic children's books because of racial undertones. This is the headline in the Daily Mail. Oh, it's just so important. I'm glad he's dealing with the important stuff. Cancel Dr. Seuss. That's really important. Absolutely crazy. I want to listen here and let you listen to Representative Madison Cawthorn appearing on Fox talking about it. Here's how the conversation went. This is Cut One.
2: Look, Congressman, these cancellations get getting more and more outlandish by the day. When does this stop? Well, brother, I was going to go to the gym after this hit, but I don't have to now. I'm already fired up. That right. is absurd. Uh, you know, in, inside of our Congress, uh, we actually have done a lot. We've got a lot accomplished. We have successfully so far renamed a post office here in the 117th Congress. Uh, so you're telling me that the, the actual priorities of the Democrats is renaming a post office and now canceling Dr. Seuss? Americans are actually struggling and this cancel culture does not help us. Uh, if we want to heal America and end this major partisan divide, we need to stop canceling our neighbor and go out and communicate with them. Also, let's realize that one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish is not as concerning as let's say, oh I don't know, China. Yes. You are absolutely right. I mean, we we, ha- we are actually losing. Uh, a battle that's not even started yet against China. They have taken away all of our manufacturing. They're taking care of all of our uh, medications over there. They produce these, the rare earth materials that we need in our telecommunications satellites. Uh, and they are actually taking over parts of Africa and South Asia with their very aggressive uh, stance when it actually comes to building infrastructure. Uh, these are, this is the threat that we should be worrying about because about, this is a threat that actually harms American lives. Not if Dr. Seuss is racist. I, it's, I actually laugh trying to think about that.
0: Well, this is going to be something that the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren will hear about at a time when China was threatening our national sovereignty and our continued existence. And Iran was shaking its fist and trying to probably cut a new deal with the Biden administration. And when we had a pandemic and when we had all sorts of problems uh, and we were in the moral sewer, uh, the important thing was that the left was concerned about Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Yeah. Dr Seuss and and also there's more to it because the CNN reports six Dr Seuss books will no longer be published because they portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. I'm sorry last I checked Books, in order to have a plot, had to have people in the book who were either hurtful or wrong. Otherwise, you don't have a plot. Do you know nothing about creating characters and having protagonists and having villains and having any kind of action in a fiction book, adult as well as children's books? Anyway, the six that are on the hook here. And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, If I Ran the Zoo, McGillicott's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. A few of those, I'm like, I don't even remember that one. The Cat's Quizzer? I don't remember that one. You know, One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, and Fox in Socks, and Cat in the Hat. Those we all remember. In a statement, Dr. Seuss Enterprises said it made the decision after consulting educators and reviewing its catalog. Ceasing sales of these books is only part part of our commitment and our broader plan to ensure Dr. Seuss Enterprises catalog represents and supports all communities and families. You know, And I saw somebody making the comment online, kind of agree with this. If if this is what the direction we're going, just cancel everything. Cancel everybody born in the 20th century because you could comb through anybody's life and they probably did something to upset some leftist at some juncture. It doesn't even matter who it is. You know, when you're to the point as a society where in the name of combating racism, you're tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln, there's no reasoning with these people. They're off their rockers. They're off their rockers. And weren't these the same people years ago who used to scream and yell about those prudish conservatives who just wanted to burn books? I remember that. And, and you'd have some objection, for example, from parents who came in and said, hey, could you not carry Heather has two mommies in the school library? Oh, they want to burn books. They want to burn. Who's burning books now? Metaphorically speaking, of course, who's banning books now? Oh, oh Amazon is banning books And all it takes in some cases is one LGBT activist to make it happen. That's what happened to Joseph Nicolosi's books and Joe Dallas's books and Ann Polk's books on the subject of homosexuality. Cancel them all. Because maybe if we cancel people, that will clean up the human heart. No, it won't. And by the way, there are an awful lot of books you guys are pushing that ought to be canceled. Just get rid of all books. Well, let me think about this for a moment. I'll tell you what comes next down the line is what happened or what was threatened to maybe have occurred in California where they were talking about this kind of issue and people were calling it a Bible ban. And it wasn't literally a Bible ban, but basically if you begin to say that we're not going to have any sort of material that violates you know, anti-discrimination laws, blah, 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 and people said, okay, well, if we extend that out, then the Bible would have to be banned. I have no doubt in my mind at some point it will come to that, or at least somebody will think of it. it. I wonder how many Christians would fight. I kind of scratch my head over that some days, but I have faith in the Lord. He always has his remnant. We got to leave it there. Thanks so much for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again for another broadcast of Janet Mefford today. God bless. Mm-hmm.